Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, which is located in our church Bibles on page 812. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we come to this text today. Father, we thank you that you are a God that delights to meet us where we are. We know that each of us is here today, specifically brought here today by you. There is a reason. So we pray that as we come to your word today, we know that you speak by the power of your spirit through your word. So we know that we will hear from you today through your word, and we pray that our ears would be open, that our hearts would be softened to change, to be impacted and empowered by the gospel in the ways that you see fit. We pray that your gospel would be magnified here, that no matter where we might be in our journey with Jesus, that you would draw us into relationship and deeper relationship with him because of his life and his death and his resurrection for us. Lord, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a young bachelor named Mike that had graduated from college and he had begun his career and he decided it was time to finally start dating and maybe settle down. But every time Mike brought a girl home, his mother would be judgmental and would unmercifully criticize the woman. Often this judgment came after the girl had left, but sometimes it was directly to her face during the visit. Now, understandably, frustration grew for Mike more and more as this happened over and over, and one day Mike sat down with his one of his buddies, and he just unloaded. He said everything that he thought, and his buddy said, hey, you know what? I have some advice for you. You need to find somebody that is just like your mother. So Mike continued to work and look for this woman, and he found what he finally thought was a perfect clone. She had the same color hair. Her eyes were very similar. Some of the mannerisms matched perfectly. She thought a lot like his mother and even walked a little bit like his mother. 
on top of it, he really liked this uh, new girlfriend a lot and thought that there was great potential for the future. So the time came for a weekend visit. He went to the parents, and the buddy that had given him the advice waited for a Sunday evening for him to return to see how it went. And Mike said, your advice was great. My mother absolutely loved her, but my father couldn't stand her. Well, we have spent the summer working through the Sermon on the Mount as seen here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And Jesus has been showing us what kingdom living is like and how it is different from the religion, the religion that the Pharisees had been promoting. So all throughout, there has been a call for us as readers and for the original hearers to ditch religion for Jesus. And as we come here to chapter 7, we see how this kingdom life directly affects relationships. We see it through relationships with those that would claim Christ, with those that don't claim Christ, and relationships uh, with God. We see that laid out here in chapter 7. But as we come here to the beginning of chapter 7, I think what we're going to see here in this text is one of the most well-known texts in all of Scripture, but also one of the most misinterpreted texts in all of Scripture. And because it's misinterpreted, that means then that it is misapplied. But what Jesus does in this text here is opens up a bottle of hard-to-swallow pills for each of us. So if you're not ready for that, now's the time to escape. But he brings it to us this way. And one thing that he asks us over and over through this text is this. What is at the heart of my judgment? This is a question we must ask ourselves. What is at the heart of my judgment? And as we go through this text, we'll see it in three different ways. First, the kind of judgment we make. Secondly, the kind of judgment we need. And thirdly, the kind of judgment that hears. So what's at the heart of my judgment? In point number one, the kind of judgment we make. And we'll see that in verses one to four. So if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible or pull it up on your phone, Matthew 7, 1 to 6, we see point number 1 in verses 1 to 4. Now, criticism and judgment are a part of life. People by nature are critical and judgmental. Now, is this a bad thing? Yes and no, though. If you think throughout the course of a week, judgment, judgment actually is a huge part and must be a part of life on this earth. As I sit and watch a Red Sox game, I judge the decisions of the management. Why are they making these choices? Why are these players that are overplayed uh, acting like rookies and making rookie mistakes? And I could go on and on and on. But as we drive down the road, we see a car ahead of us that is driving erratically and we must make a judgment call. Am I or my passengers in danger? from this other vehicle? Do I need to slow down and get away from this vehicle, or do I need to speed up and pass them so that I am nowhere near them? When we go to the doctor, we judge, do I need a second opinion, or is this broker one that I actually want handling my 
even the mundane. Does Chick-fil-A really have the best chicken sandwich or is it all hype? But before we go any further, we have to ask ourselves, what does Jesus really mean when he says here in this text, do not judge? Now, in the world today, we can cast any of the above judgments and be totally fine. People will be totally cool with that. But let someone cast a moral judgment against someone else, and people are immediately up in arms. So does Jesus mean that we cannot cast moral judgments? Certainly, that cannot be the case. Because you would never let someone accused of child abuse babysit your children. In that moment, you are making a moral judgment. Nor would we allow them to be anywhere near the nursery here. But here is something to grasp. When we come to a section of the Bible that we don't understand, we should use the immediate context and the teaching of the Bible as a whole to frame and shape our interpretation of the text in question. So Jesus says, don't judge. And we know experientially that he can't mean that we are never to judge, because then we couldn't live. But again, our experiences are quite faulty very often, so we can't rely on that either. So what does he say in the surrounding texts? Now up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has made some pretty strong judgments against the Pharisees. He's made judgment against their beliefs and against their behavior. So maybe Jesus means that only he can judge and that we shouldn't. But wait, again, as we look at the text, verse 6 tells us that we are actually to judge. It says, not to give what is holy to dogs or to throw our pearls before pigs. So we have to make some sort of judgment there. Are they a brother in Christ or are they what is considered here in the text a dog or a pig? Further, in verse 15, we're told to beware of false prophets that come in sheep's clothing but are actually wolves. So we have to make some sort of judgment there. Is this person a sheep or are they a wolf? Is this a false prophet or not? Now, outside of this context, we are also reminded of the necessity to make judgments. In 1 John 4, 1, we are to test the spirits to see if they are actually from God or if they are false prophets. In John 7, we're reminded to stop making judgments by mere appearances, but we're to make right judgments. Now, we could go on and on with texts, many from the Apostle Paul, that tell us to judge and actually teach us how to judge. So clearly, from the immediate text, from the context, and from the entire teaching of Scripture, Jesus isn't saying, don't judge, period. You say, okay, well then there must be something in this Greek word that he uses to explain it more for us. It just doesn't translate well into the English all right, tell us what this word actually means. Sorry. That's what it means. It can be used for a variety of judgments, ranging from harsh judgments to the judgment in a court of law to the opinion that you might make on something that is completely mundane. So what does he really mean? Can we really know? Now what Jesus is teaching here in this text is not, don't judge at all. But he 
is teaching us the importance of making wise, true, and most importantly, loving judgments. He's aiming his words right at our heart, just as he's been doing the entire Sermon on the Mount. So when we look at it from that perspective, Jesus is warning us about being that person that is hypercritical or condemning, right? It's a judgment that sets ourselves up as judge and jury. Essentially, it's a judgment that sets us up as God. So let's flesh that out a bit. Again, as we ask the question, what's at the heart of my judgment? What's the kind of judgment that we typically make? Let's start a little bit light, okay? In general, why is reality TV so popular? Is it because of the quality dialogue and character development? No. But it's popular because it makes us feel better about ourselves. It makes us feel better about our own lives and our own failures. When we see a show about hoarding, my house doesn't seem so cluttered now, does it? When we admit that we have put on a little bit of weight, we can say, but sure, I don't have a camera following me around on my 600-pound life. Maybe if you choose one of the real housewives of whatever city, uh, you say, well, I might be a little bit off my rocker, but boy, those ladies are crazy. Now, what is at the heart of my judgment? Anne Lamott, in her book, Traveling Mercies, tells the following story of a time that she went to Mexico to the beach for a vacation. And in this entry, she uh, described a wrestling match, an internal wrestling match that she had with herself about her own identity and about the effects of aging and gravity, particularly when she was wearing a swimsuit. And she was determined to enjoy the freedom of finally strolling on a sandy Mexican beach. So she talks herself up, she puts on her swimsuit, she decides not to wear a sarong, and she heads out to go meet her son and his family and describes this experience as she walks with her toes in the sand and the warm, salty breeze in her face. She says, Then, out of nowhere, like dogs from hell, four teenage girls are walking toward me. She said she wanted a trap door to open under her feet as the girls looked at her standing there in the bright sunlight. And she goes on, but they made a fatal mistake. They look at each other with these amused looks, the kind I must have given flabby women 30 years ago. And she describes two thoughts that came to mind. The first was tick-tock, tick-tock. She said the second was the realization that she knew their secret. They didn't think that they were okay. They were already in the hyper-self-consciousness of the American teenage girl, and this meant that they were all doomed. Now what Anne describes there is something that we all do. Whether
whether it's about our bodies or whether it's about that supposed happy family that is always on vacation and always loving other, one another to the fullest as they post pictures on Instagram or maybe about our jobs. It's the cycle of judgment and the desire to find someone that is worse than us so that we feel better about ourselves. Now, I may, I may push this a little bit further, and this is where Jesus is pushing. We do this very thing in our spiritual lives. We are habitual judgers. We often judge things that are unnecessary and actually not even our business, like 1 Thessalonians 4.11 warns us against. We judge based on incomplete knowledge, not knowing or really caring to know the full story or background of an individual, certainly not wanting to walk a mile in their shoes. We are presumptuous in our judgment. Further still, we are joyful in our judgment, are we not? We smile and say, ah, how the mighty have fallen. We are merciless in our judgment, treating people in ways that we would never want to be treated if the roles were reversed. And in the end, it's all destructive. It's destructive to ourselves. It's destructive to the other individual or individuals. And it's definitely destructive to the purity and peace of the church. It's why Jesus warns us in verse 2, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So in a very real way, Jesus reminds us what goes around comes around. And in that day, we will be standing before the judge of all judges. What if verse 2 came to our minds before we cast our judgment? How do you think we would act or judge differently? Do you want the scale of mercy when it comes to your judgment? Or do you want the scale of exacting justice? He lightens the mood a little bit. And he goes on to use a humorous illustration to drive his point home. Look at verse 2. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me get that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? So the heart of our judgment is to make ourselves feel better or superior to another. And we do that by minimizing our failures and maximizing the failures of others. One commentator described it this way. We look at our problems through the wrong end of a telescope while we look at others' problems a microscope. So here we are, and here I am, ignoring a giant log in my eye while calling out the speck of sawdust in someone else's eye. This judgmental, critical spirit is not a spiritual gift, as some in the church might believe. And the world is actually right to call us out on it. This is our posture. Christ and the world reminds us that we are nothing but hypocrites. We have to face this text with all of its fearful force. 
remember, Jesus doesn't call us to a life that is free of judging. But he calls us to a different way. So he goes on to show us the kind of judgment we need in verse 5. He continues this log and speculation. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what does Jesus say that we need? He says we need to judge ourselves. Both the Old and the New Testaments call us to this, and it's only as we look at our own faults and begin to be real with our own failures and work on them, only then do we have the humble posture required to get the speck out of someone else's eye. When we judge ourselves, we are able to see ourselves rightly, We're able to see ourselves as we truly are. And in turn, we are then able to see others as they truly are. So instead of being critical and harsh, we weep with them and for them as we weep for ourselves. Now this is not an easy job in the slightest because we are often blind to the beam that is in our own eye. Many people aren't intentionally hypocrites. It's like uh, that blot of spaghetti sauce that's on your cheek. You need somebody else to point that out to you. David needed Nathan to come to him and point out his hypocrisy. Those men that were ready to stone the woman that was caught in sin needed Jesus to call out, let him who was without sin cast the first stone. We need community around us to show us that love. At the least, a close friend that can speak to us words of grace and truth that show us our own shortcomings. So Jesus is showing us the different way. So instead of making hasty judgments of others, instead of being a fault finder, instead of thinking the worst of others' motives and actions, instead of making minor things a huge deal, the different way says, first, check yourself. Now remember, our heart is sinful and fallen, and we must remember that our own heart is this way, and we must remember the grace that we have received in Christ, and as we sit in that, as we, as we marinate in that, then we can begin to work on our own stuff. And then, and only then, can we start to see clearly to help another get the speck out of their eye. Paul in the book of Colossians says, put away all anger, wrath, malice, put away complaining and criticizing of one another, and put on love, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. John Stott powerfully said, we need to be as critical of ourselves as we often are of others and as generous to others as we always are to ourselves. So what is at the heart of the judgment of myself? It's not to beat myself up and to create a a woe is me type of attitude. But no, it is a heart that says, hey, Christ, of the work of Christ, because of his death, because of his life, because of his resurrection, I can have new life and life to the fullest. 
he has redeemed me. He has forgiven all of my stuff, past, present, and future, but he doesn't leave me there. He calls me to grow in Christ-likeness. He calls me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. He calls me to grow and to change. Remember when we have new members come forward, there are five commitment questions that we ask. And one of those vows says this, Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to, to live as becomes a follower of Christ? This is the process of the Christian life. It's a journey that's often like a roller coaster with failures, with times of growth, but it's always a life of repentance that says, I have stuff that I need to let go. So church, let's start working on the way. And finally, let's look at the kind of judgment that he is. We also see this in verse 5 and 6. It says, you hypocrite, take First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, after looking at those first two points, we may think, well, is there ever a time for me to make judgment day? Yes. Yes, there is. The verse says, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Is the log a problem in my eye? Yes. Is the speck in their eye also a problem? Yes. If we fail to help our brother with the speck in their eye, we are equally as unloving as if we had judged them sinfully or gone up to them with the log in our eye and banged their head to death. It is equally as unloving to keep the speck in a brother's eye. See, the process, though, for removing something from the eye is very difficult and delicate. It's one of the most sensitive parts of the body. The moment something gets close uh, to touch it, it closes up. Imagine those moments when you were a child, when you were playing out in the summertime and a gnat got in your eye, or when you're out on the playground and a speck of sand got into your eye. You ran to your mom or to someone that you knew, someone that you trusted, and you said, I have something in my eye. Can you find it? Can you get it out? And you do the whole pull it open, look up, look down, look left, look right. And then they go in how? With something metal? No. They go in gently and tenderly with something soft that is not going to damage the eye to try to remove whatever is there that shouldn't be. Even more so when we deal with the soul of a human being. It requires patience, carefulness, sensitivity, and gentleness. We must be humble, recognizing our own sin. And we must come with sympathy and care, getting a full picture of what is going on in their story rather than rushing in with the sword of truth. We need God's mercy 
that mercy that has been poured out on us in Christ to be able to be a people that speak the truth in grace and love. And some may think, well, what about verse 6? Isn't that a situation where we finally get to stick it to somebody and let them have it? No. Verse 6 is actually a very unique situation where someone might be so hostile to gospel truth that there is no use in that moment in time to try to get the speck out of their eye. You have gone through your stuff, you've been patient, you've been loving, you've listened to their story, and they continue to refuse truth. Then and only then, with much prayer, that you'll hear about next week in verse 7, do you decide that it is now not worth it to keep putting truth before them. All the while, you remember that God is the final judge and that he has called you to love and kindness and Christian character to both believer and non-believer. First Corinthians 13 reminds us, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Now those verses are often viewed as a checklist for genuine love. Behaviors that we must do and perform if we are to love biblically and in a genuine way. And while that is true, that list is first a love that we must experience. And we must experience it if we are ever going to be able to actually live it out. And the only way that we can experience it is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why Psalm 103 was such a huge one for our assurance of pardon today. I encourage you to go back and read that again. Why? Because all of my sin was laid on Jesus Christ. All of the wrongs that I have done, all of the rights that I have failed to do, and all of the rights that I think make God happy with me, there on the cross. God made Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might find the righteousness of God in him. We sang about it in our very first song. The wrath of God was satisfied as he poured that out on Jesus Christ. My sin on Jesus Christ. The just for the unjust. The righteous taking my unrighteousness on the cross. And it's his judgment. The judgment that was poured out on Christ that brings us true freedom and peace. It's why Paul can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's through his judgment that we have healing. And that, my friends, is the judgment that we are to hold out to others. Again, in Christ alone, we sang that song, My Hope is Found. And I love that song, but it's again, it's not just my hope is found. It's the hope of the nations is found there in Christ alone. So what is at the heart of my judgment? 
Jesus took it so I don't have to. So my goal for any judgment that I might be able to have should be for mercy and healing and life. You know, it's easy to cast judgment. It's easy to play God and look down on others, uh, bringing our imaginary gavel down in our own court of law. But we must realize that our own court, done in that way, only brings destruction. But the call for us in the kingdom of God is to something far different. It's a judgment that brings healing. It's a judgment that does not neglect truth. Do you hear that? It does not neglect truth. But that truth has to hit us first. It's a judgment that requires relationship, sensitivity, patience, and much work. It's this ministry of reconciliation of all sorts to which we are called. And it's certainly not the easier of the paths, but it is the path of Christ. It is the path of his kingdom. So what is at the heart of my judgment? Is it life or is it death? Father, we thank you that in Christ we can rest. Knowing that justice has been paid. But Lord, it is so easy, we confess, for us to come in and think and play God. Help us to remember who we are. Help us to remember what great a salvation we have in Christ. And on that platform alone, may we begin the healing process for ourselves and others as we are reconciled to you through Jesus Christ alone. It's in his name that we pray.